The book of Judges ends with these haunting words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges is a tragedy. It's a story of failure. It's a downward spiral into corruption, sin, self-destruction, and civil war. For in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. One thing you'll immediately notice in our very first chapter is how different the world of the judges is from our own. In this first chapter, an army will be defeated and their king will have his thumbs and big toes cut off. Why? Well, why not? But what may be less evident on its face is also still true. The world of the judges is not so different from our own. For in our day, does this not still ring true? Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This morning, as we begin our series in the book of Judges, I want to briefly consider why in the world we're preaching this book, and then I want to point to three simple themes that we will bump up against over and over as we work through this narrative over the next few months. These are not the only themes, but they are certainly significant ones. Those themes are this. First, the faithfulness of God. We will together see that God is faithful to his promises. Second theme we'll see together is the judgment of God, that God alone is the righteous judge. And third, we'll see the discipline of God. God disciplines those he loves. If you're taking notes, the main idea of this sermon is this. God is the righteous judge who keeps his promises and disciplines those he loves. Of course, some moments of the series may be difficult, and in those difficult moments, it's imperative that I remind us of the big picture, hone in on what must be clear. And this morning, that is this. God is the righteous judge who keeps his promises and disciplines those he loves. That is the sermon in one sentence. You are dismissed. The title of this sermon is Unfinished Conquest and Unfaithful People. Unfinished Conquest and Unfaithful People, if you want the subtitle, An Unsettling Introduction. Now, let's very briefly consider why we're preaching Judges and then just jump right into the text. A brief word about just our approach. Most weeks, if not every week, we won't read every word of the selected text. We'll cover larger territories than we would if we were preaching through uh, Ephesians, for example. Because the writer of Judges gives us a series of stories, and we will consider each of those stories in the units they're given to us. In any case, this morning we will cover from the first verse of the book to the fifth verse of chapter two. Now, one thing I will add is these larger passages serve as fertile ground for discipleship group discussion and your own reading. So we will be able to dis discuss more thoroughly these passages in discipleship groups, which, not so coincidentally, kick off this Wednesday at 6.30. Uh, we're only meeting on Wednesdays this semester, having a little bit larger groups. So if you signed up or not, Wednesday, 6.30, discipleship groups will be kicked off. Just come out, and we will get you connected once you get here. So why preach a series in Judges? I just want to give two reasons, though, you know, there are uh, several that, that we could, could certainly give. First, the Old Testament is Christian Scripture. The Old Testament is Christian Scripture. One that's evident on its face if we are to read the Bible like Jesus reads the Bible, 
if we were to read the Bible like the apostles read the Bible. Second, if you're more of a student of history like myself, a man rose up in uh, the mid hundreds, between the uh, 100 and 200, somewhere in there, named Marcion, and he decides that the Old Testament God is bad and that the New Testament God is good. And so he says, no, let's do away with the Old Testament God and let's just focus on the New Testament God. And the church quickly and universally and immediately condemned him as a heretic. Now, the Old Testament can be confusing. It can be hard to reconcile some of the things you see at face value in the Old Testament with teaching you find in the New Testament. It is crucial to remember, however, that God did not give the Old Testament to Jews and then the New Testament to Christians. Rather, through the pages of the whole Bible, God is progressively revealing both himself and his plan for the world. It is good and right and necessary to read the Old Testament as Christians. Jesus did. The apostles did. The risen Christ expounds the Old Testament in light of his work on the road to Emmaus. The Old Testament is Christian scripture. A second reason that we must read the Old Testament and why we're preaching a series from Judges. The Old Testament is Christian scripture and it points us to the gospel. This is important. The whole of scriptures present one unified story that finds its climax and fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament then deepens our understanding and appreciation of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has saved us. The Old Testament is not merely a, a collection of stories with moral value that tell the story of one ancient Near Eastern people. No, the Old Testament is our story. It is our legacy. These are our fathers and mothers. And even in their failures, we have much to learn both about the character of God and the life of faith. In fact, one of the things that makes preaching judges more challenging is you can't just write everyone off as evil because the writer of Hebrews doesn't do that. In fact, in Hebrews 11, he quotes some of these judges. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Simpson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of their weakness, became mighty in war, and put armies to flight. In these pages, I pray we encounter the true and living God not standing in judgment over the text, but standing in awe of our living God who speaks through the text. I pray we encounter this week and in the weeks to come the true and living God, the righteous judge who keeps his promises and disciplines those he loves. Now, let's get to the text. Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first? for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Judges begins after the death of Joshua. Who was Joshua anyways? Joshua was a great leader for the people of Israel. He followed in Moses' footsteps, even succeeding where Moses failed, leading at long last the people of God, into the land he swore to their fathers. That land, however, was occupied by 
Canaanites. And the book of Joshua tells a generally triumphant story of God's people trusting God, obeying God, and enjoying military success. They successfully conquer Canaanite land as long as they remember the promise, power, and presence of the Lord their God. They are successful as long as they remember the reason God is giving them this land. In this land, they were to worship and serve the one true God and live in such a way that surrounding pagan nations would turn from their false gods and worship the true and living God, the creator and judge of all. So Joshua has led the Israelites to conquer much Canaanite land, but as we begin the book of Judges, much land remains to be conquered, and Joshua is dead. Now, it's a credit to his leadership that the book of Judges begins on a positive note. Maybe I'm reaching a little bit here, but the Israelites know where to go when things are uncertain. The Israelites know where to go when things are uncertain. This book begins with a question and an answer, a prayer and a response, a conversation between God and his people. Oh, the people of Israel ask a legitimate question. Joshua is dead. If this fight will go on, who is going to lead it? Who will go before us to fight? Rather than trying to answer this in their own power, they do the right thing, like Joshua has modeled for them, and they ask the Lord their God, who will lead this charge? Who will go before us to fight? The Lord God answers with one specific tribe from the south, the people of Judah. Judah will go up, for I have given the lands into his hand. This is subtle, and is not yet to be overstated. But the period of history we're dealing with here in Judges is a period that begins with the death of Joshua and ends with the rise of the monarchy, with the coming kingdom of Saul and David, a kingdom that will rise from the line of Judah. And when the Lord God answers his people, who will go before us? His answer has much bigger implications than even they would ever know. And here is the faintest sign where all of this is going, where the story of God will find its climax with the coronation of a great king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But our book begins hopeful enough, right? We have no reason to believe the conquest should suffer. Verses 3 through 17, if we were to read them all, you would see the military exploits of Judah and the southern tribes. Verses 22 through 35 will tell the conquests of the northern tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Things seem to be going well enough. Let's just look at verses 17 and 18, for example. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephoth and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. If we could stop there, the story would be successful enough. 
The conquest is going on without Joshua in the spirit of the NFL kicking off. Maybe Joshua is just a system quarterback. Like maybe anyone can just step right into this and lead the mission forward. A promise made to Abraham so long ago is finally coming true. The first theme we see is that God is faithful to his promises. But oh, here comes verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. Enter ominous music. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Why is it now a problem that they are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, and outplanned? Yes, that's from Hamilton. I'll get to that in a second, but before I do, we need to take a little rabbit trail. It's not a rabbit trail that distracts us from the main idea, but it's a rabbit trail that we need because in it, I think we see the second theme of judges, the judgment of God. And that rabbit trail is just an answer to this question. Hold on a minute. Is God just telling people to go into these places and kill everybody? If you're going to read through the Old Testament, specifically Joshua and Judges and these stories of conquest, you simply must reckon with that question. What kind of God do we encounter in this book? We've been talking up to this point in the sermon about conquest, just assuming that it's a, a positive thing. But we know in our day that this idea of religious conquest can be very harmful. Uh, we see the idea today in groups like ISIS. Uh, today is itself September 11th. I mean, we are acutely aware uh, as a nation of the problems that come with uh, religious extremists taking on themselves this mantle to go and kill in the name of their God. So what do we make of the violent language in Joshua and Judges? Now, I, I, I will not and cannot answer this question fully while covering the biblical data that, that I think is there for us to cover. For some of you, what I'll say will not be satisfying, frankly, but it is my conviction that God's ways, first, are not our ways. I'm not answering the question yet. I'm framing our answer to the question. So whenever we approach a question like that, first we approach a question reverentially, deferring godness from ourself to God. We dare not stand in judgment over the text. But I do think the passage itself gives us somewhat of a framework to understand what's going on with the violence we see in books like Joshua and Judges. I think the scripture gives us the redemptive purpose of conquest and violence. Let's look at this through the lens of two people given to us in our passage today. The Lord of Bezek, Adonai Bezek, and a Canaanite spy. So if you have your Bibles, look with me in Judges chapter 1, uh, verses 4 through 7. Judges chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Look in your Bibles with me. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites, the Perizzites, into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek, which means the Lord of Bezek, like the king of that region and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. 
first, rather than imposing sort of our conceptions on the text, let's allow the one who is suffering this violence to speak to us. Let's listen directly to the testimony of this conquered king. The Lord of Bezek tries to get away. He is caught. His toes and his thumbs are ripped off. And he says essentially, I did these things to others. Others have sat under my table with this punishment that I've doled out to them in conquering their people. In his commentary, Tim Keller points out, God's judgment throughout history is to give people over to the consequences of the life they have chosen. God's judgment throughout history is to give people over to the consequences of the life they have chosen. Adonai Bezek does not protest his end. He acknowledges that it is, in some ways, just. That it's righteous. That it's being rendered to him what he has rendered to others. He is facing an adequate penalty for what he's done. At this unique moment in history, God is using Israel. This is one of the most important things I'll say as you think through uh, today and in your own reading and in discipleship groups, as you think through the role of violence in this book. At this unique moment in history, God is using Israel as a vehicle of his judgment on sinful nations. Stress unique. At this era of history, the state has been given the sword and the church has been given the keys to the kingdom in the preaching of the gospel. Don't miss this. The Lord of Bezek is a type. Literarily, he is functioning as a picture of the kind of Canaanite societies that God is overthrowing. We are not entering a morally neutral world. We do not today live in a morally neutral world. There is only the living God and false gods. And through narrative, the author of Judges is teaching us that the Israelites are acting as God's judgment for a godless culture whose moment of reckoning with their judge has come. Now contrast him with the Canaanite man some Israelite spies in verse 24 encounter. We have met the Lord of Bezek, who is a picture of Canaanite kingdoms. Kingdoms that we see in other passages of Scripture are practicing child sacrifice that have dev, uh, devolved into all sorts of wickedness and immorality. We meet the, the king of a people. They are destroyed, and the king admits that this is what we've had coming to us. Now contrast this encounter with another encounter with a Canaanite person in verse 24. The spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, a Canaanite man, Please show us the way into your city and we will deal kindly with you. The spies are coming from the people of Israel. He showed them the way into the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Just like Rahab before by siding with the true and living God, this man escapes destruction and is delivered. There is a pressing question presented to us subtly. 
Will you align yourself with God or will you align yourself against God? Throughout Judges, we see all sorts of violence and carnage. All of it is the result of sin. We still see violence and carnage that results from sin. You may protest, but surely out of the 10,000 people, some innocent people have died. Certainly so, but are innocent people still impacted by sin? Do the consequences of your sin only affect you? When a father and husband cheats on his wife, are innocent people affected? When someone goes into a shopping mall and shoots people, are innocent people affected? Here's what we see in this text. Here's how we can begin to make sense of some of the difficulty in Judges. God is bringing judgment to nations that have brought judgment on themselves and even Israel. His chosen people are not exempt from the consequences of their sin because the living God is not a partial God. The living God is a just God. What kind of God do we encounter here? Bringing this important rabbit trail that shows us our second theme to a close. Oh, we encounter the true, living, just, and righteous God who will bring judgment and healing to the land. Military conquest plays a limited and focused role in the story of God, and that story, once unfolded, will not allow God's people to spread God's rule with violence. That sentence is a thesis statement. And so write that, if, you know, if you're taking notes and are trying to make sense of all this, I think it'll be helpful that as we unfold the whole of the Bible from, from Genesis to Revelation, we're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. We get to Judges and we see the story of conquest of God's people going into these nations. And our modern sensibilities are like, wow, the Canaanites are here and God's people are just going in and taking it. What we're seeing in this text plays a focused role in the story of God unfolding in the world. And that story, as it's unfolding, will not allow us today to pick up guns and build the kingdom of God in our own power. Because the story that's unfolding is pointing us to Jesus, the Christ. We must read these texts with humility knowing that God alone is the righteous judge. He will let no sin go unjudged or undisciplined. And this righteous judge disciplines those he loves. Our third theme, the discipline of God. What have God's people done deserve discipline? Remember verse 19. Look with me, please. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Common sense doesn't see a problem here, frankly. They got chariots of iron, guess what? We don't. We're good. We want nothing to do with invading those people. We're gonna lose and we don't want this suicide mission. We'll just stay over here in our part of this land, and you can stay over there in your part of the land, and we'll just coexist. Yeah, you can do whatever you wanna do, sacrifice to your gods, sacrifice children to your false gods, whatever you wanna do, but, but we're gonna be over here, because if we try to attack you, we will all die. Common sense does not see a problem here, but faith does. Because the people of God don't trust in iron chariots. 
The people of God don't trust in the might of 10,000 men. The people of God don't trust in the riches of this world. The people of God trust in the power of the Lord. This was Joshua's lasting word, his last word to his people. This is what he wants them to remember, to sit back and listen to these words from Joshua 23. Don't flip there, just listen. In his final speech, he stands before the people and says, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, the nations that remain, along with all the nations I've already cut off from Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For, by the, Lord, for the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. As for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand of them, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Listen to the heart of the command he's giving the people. This is his parting speech. Be very, very careful not to stray to the left and not to stray to the right. But he gets even deeper. He says, don't stop loving the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and if you make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good ground that the Lord God has given you. Oh, the people of Israel have not listened to Joshua. Why does the conquest stop in the very first chapter? Because the people of God stopped walking by faith. Why did they stop walking by faith? Because they stopped loving the Lord their God with all their heart, all their mind, and all their strength. Brother, sister, you will stop walking by faith if your heart fixes on something or someone else. Conquest turns into compromise. Sin is keeping them from winning the battles they had no business winning in the first place. Sin is keeping them from winning the battles they had no business winning in the first place. Um, being a pastor, you know, there's like pastoral counseling that you're often a part of, and, and it's sort of an axiom that you hear a lot and say a lot, and I see a lot, and it's so true, is that sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. You can't see what's clear because you're so blinded by sin. Sin makes you stupid, yes. But sin can make you smart in the worst possible way. Sin can make you stupid, yes, but sin can make you smart in the worst possible way. Because sin can teach you to trust in yourself instead of in the Lord your God. 
The Bible teaches that everything we do in our lives that is not from faith is sin. Did you know it was sinful for the people of God not to attack a superior army? Why? Because they're not walking by faith. They're not obeying the Lord. It is sinful for us not to do what God calls us to do. Their conquests begin to fail as early as the first chapter. And in the beginning of the second chapter, an angel of the Lord will tell them why. Look with me in Judges chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. God is faithful to his promise and God keeps his word. Through the lips of Joshua, he spoke to his people. If you don't do what I say, I won't drive out their gods. Their gods will be a snare to you. And almost verbatim, the angel of the Lord says, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you. They shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare. I promised you this land. I rescued you from slavery in Egypt. I preserved you through wandering in the wilderness. I have fought for you against powerful armies. At the sound of trumpets, city walls have fallen. And I've promised that I would never break the covenant I've made with you. But I've also promised the Lord God says, in essence, that the wicked will not prosper. I have also promised that if you do not obey my voice, there will be consequences. So I will keep my word, essentially, says the Lord God. I'm going to leave those nations right there. They and their gods will be a snare to you. A worship team, you guys can start making your way up. The Lord God is disciplining his people, not in contradiction to the covenant. Like, oh, I thought they were God's people. Why is he doing this. No, he's disciplining, disciplining his people because of the covenant. He has promised to be their God even if they disobey him. And here we find a tension, a sort of paradox. God has made two promises that seem to be against each other. First, God has promised that he would not break his covenant and that he will be faithful to the promise he made to Abraham that his people will dwell in the land. But God has also promised that he would not give the land to these disobedient people. 
that their sins would matter. We've almost got like an unstoppable force and an immovable object scenario here. This is the tension of all of Judges. How do we reckon with the repeated failure of God's people and the faithfulness of God? How do we reckon with the repeated failure of God's people and the faithfulness of God? How in the world can we even call them God's people? As the narrative unfolds, that tension doesn't go away. It gets stronger. Why? Because I think that tension is the point of judges. How can God uphold justice and extend mercy? How can God keep all of his promises? How can God discipline those he loves without casting them out altogether? Oh, we know the answer this morning. The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteous of God. On the cross, God upholds justice and God extends mercy. He punishes sin, not just Canaanite sin, but Israelite sin, not just their sin, but our sin, not just your sin, but my sin. Satisfying his justice. And there at the cross, he offers all of us acceptance and forgiveness. Canaanite, Israelite, American, English, Chinese, Russian, and everything in between. Today, as the writer of Hebrews says, he disciplines those he loves that we might become holy as he is holy. God's people over and over again are going to sin big time. God will give them a leader, they'll follow them for a little while, they'll mess up again, God will bring judgment and discipline, they will cry about it, they'll come back to God, and then they'll go right back into sinning, and the spiral will go down and down and down and down and down. And the book of Judges will end with this cry. Oh, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When we read Judges as Christians, I think there is something else that screams to us so silently. There will be a king in Israel. And he will make all things right. He will teach the world to do what is right. Not in their own eyes but in his eyes, in grace, in love, he will bring justice to the nations. At the very beginning of Judges, we see that God is the righteous judge who keeps his promises and disciplines those he loves. Let's pray together. Father, as we read this book, we will see what happens when we do what is right in our own eyes. We will see what happens when we do not heed your words. We will see what happens when we don't live differently from those who worship false gods of comfort 
and success and power and prestige and pleasure. We will see your discipline, Lord. We will see your judgment go forth. I pray that, Lord, we would see you as the righteous judge that you are, who will render faithfully to each as they deserve. And Lord, I pray that we would look to Jesus the Christ, the true King of Israel, who will suffer and die for us, who will take our punishment, who will take our judgment on himself, so that the discipline we receive would be discipline of grace and of mercy coming from a father who loves us. I pray that you would shape us, that you would shape me, that you would shape all of our hearers, our congregation, over these next several weeks. Remind us, Lord, that you are the righteous judge, that you keep your promises even when we don't, and you discipline us because you love us. We long for the day where King Jesus reigns on earth fully as it is in heaven. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.